The scripture reading for today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 53 to 73. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him in a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You were also with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Well, good morning. We are uh, continuing our sermon series, walking through the back half of Mark. Uh, and in a sense, uh, we are slowly walking alongside Jesus and the disciples while he's on his way to his death. And we're fully into the passion narrative now, where Jesus is sentenced to death by the Sanhedrin, or the ruling council of the people of Israel. And so last week, we looked at the celebration of the Passover feast and Jesus fulfilling the ceremony in his person, and in doing so, instituting the Lord's Supper. Um, Then, after this, we see Jesus and the disciples go, and uh, Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then we see Judas betraying Jesus, handing him over to the authorities. And now, in the passage we just read, we see Jesus standing trial before the Sanhedrin, all while Peter, one of his closest disciples, watches on. And then what we're going to see is that both of these two men stand trial, Peter in his own way, and Jesus in the obvious way. And what we're going to see, though, is that Jesus didn't just stand trial for himself, but that he stood trial for the sake of the world and for our sake. And then substituting himself 
in that way for us, it reminds us of our calling as Christians to bear witness to him. Those are our two points. We'll get to them in a little bit. Um, but before we do, when I was um, growing up, and uh, I realize I've been a little bit on a kick these days, uh, my soccer days, but uh, I was a 14, 15-year-old boy and spent a lot of my summers in the heat playing soccer. And uh, I'll never forget this one day when me and my teammates were really goofing around. Uh, we were being extra lazy this particular day. We were being extra goofy Um, And our coach was not happy with us about it. And I just remembered seeing his face as he got more and more frustrated with us and more and more frustrated and angrier and angrier until we heard the words we never wanted to hear. Go line up on the end line. And this meant sprints. So we all go line up on the end line and he starts blowing the whistle. So we're starting to run suicides to the six yard, you know, 12, 18, half field, all the way back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. We get to the end line after the full field sprint and back. Whistle blows again. Start all over. Now we are getting angrier as well because we feel like the crime didn't fit the punishment. So we're all getting more and more mad. And I'll never forget, I was getting so frustrated uh, that in the heat of my frustration, my frustration, uh, I let a four-letter word slip. I'm not going to say which one, but I let it slip, and all of a sudden, we hear a whistle. And he says, Northrop, what was that? And I said, um, nothing. I lied. Um, and... He said, I know I heard you say something. And I said, no, I didn't. And then all of a sudden, one of my teammates says this. He said, Coach, Northrop is a Christian. If you thought he cursed, he didn't. He would never do that. And I went right along with it. <laughs> Coach just looks at me for a second, shakes his head, and lets us break for water. <clears throat> so for a fleeting moment, of course, my heart was happy. We didn't have to run anymore. Doubly so, uh, I was also, there was a, a sense of me um, as the young Christian boy that I was that was very um, kind of proud of myself in that moment um, for being like, oh, I, maybe, like, they know I'm a Christian. Like, they, they think I'm a, a good guy. But that was quickly replaced by the right emotion, which was shame. Deep, deep shame is actually what I felt in that moment. I was, truthfully, a liar. And what my teammates thought of me, actually, in that moment wasn't true. In a way, uh, that was my moment of standing trial in front of my coach... For a sin that I had justly committed, and I was let off. Because of the witness of my teammate, I was let go. I thought about that moment a lot this week, and and here's why. In the passage we're looking at today, the themes of witness and standing trial are all through it. We see Jesus standing trial before the Sanhedrin, but we see him doing it unjustly. uh, With plenty of incongruent and false witnesses about him. And he gets condemned. 
But Peter is also standing trial before people, servants. And he's being condemned justly for his association with Jesus. And his sinful, false, and unjust witness, his lies to them, he goes free. And these two stories are inextricably linked for a reason. Mark does this for a purpose. In Jesus' unjust trial and condemnation, and in Peter's failure in his trial, but through his acquittal, we are to see in both that Jesus submitted himself, substituted himself for the sake of the world. He allowed himself to stand trial, though there was no case against him. He allowed himself to be taken to court with unjust accusations, unfair circumstances, and for sins that he did not commit. For my sake... And for yours. And he was crushed for it. And in that crushing, and in that punishment, and in that unfair and unjust treatment, we are set free. We find life. That is the paradox of the gospel. And what uh, this, that truth, that wonderful, beautiful truth calls us to, and it's the other theme of the passage, it calls us to bear witness to that. It calls us to bear witness to who he is and what he's done for the world. And, and unlike the Sanhedrin who couldn't find faithful witnesses, and like Peter who failed to be a true witness to Jesus, we are called to bear true, faithful, and honest witness to him who substituted himself for our sake, who stood trial for us when we couldn't. But I was um, thinking this week, I, I was wondering to myself, well, why do we fail at this? Why, why do we not do this well every day? And um, it didn't dawn on me until just a little bit ago. We talked, when Michael talked about our confession of sin, you know, we view God as too small. And when we view God as too small, we view his sacrifice as too small. And what he did in substituting himself for our sake, we allow that to become numb and dull, and not the astonishing thing that it is. But the truth of the gospel is that he did, and it is enormous. It is as enormous as God is big as this sacrifice for us, because it's for the salvation of the entire world, and for me, and for you. And so today we're going to see uh, two ways that Jesus stood trial and that we must bear witness to today. So first, we're going to see that Jesus stood trial for the sake of the world because of who he is. And then we're going to see that Jesus stood trial for the sake of our hearts by what he has done. So first, for the sake of the world, Jesus stood trial. So the trial before the Sanhedrin that Mark paints for us shows both the injustice of the trial itself and the injustice to who the trial was about. Uh, and in doing so, it shows how both these things were necessary for Jesus to substitute himself for the sake of the world. So first, the trial. Verses 55 says this, Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. See, they already had the verdict. This thing was a sham for the beginning. The chief priests and the councils were seeking testimony to put him to death not evidence as to whether he was innocent or guilty enough. It was already in hand, this verdict, and they were just seeking proof to rationalize it to the people and to themselves. 
And then in verse 56, it says, Many bore false witnesses against him, but their testimonies did not agree. And according to the law, Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 17 and 19, it was necessary in cases that require the death penalty, which is what they were trying to do, to have two witnesses. So they had to have at least two. And these two had to give exact, consistent evidence. And if at any point there was an inconsistency in their stories, the whole case was thrown out. Done. But not in this case. Then we see in verses 57 and 58 that the testimonies themselves were fraudulent. It says uh, they stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that was made with hands. And in three days I will build another not made with hands. So, uh, and then it says even their testimonies did not agree again. So Jesus had indeed prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. Uh, but he never said that he would do it with his own hands. And that prophecy does come true in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. But he never said he would do it himself. So they made this up. It was a lie in and of itself. So Caiaphas, the head of the Sanhedrin, stands and asks him this in verse 60. Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent. He made no answer. And so you see Caiaphas getting more and more frustrated. And so in his exasperation, he stands up and he says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus finally answers to him. And this answer is actually astonishing because Jesus does something here that he has not done in his entire ministry. He says this, I am. And he doesn't stop there and he goes on to say, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. What he is doing here is amazing. He is finally revealed himself, who he truly is to the most powerful people in Israel. He claimed his divinity to them for the first time. And one thing that I I never really understood about uh, Jesus is is why throughout the Gospels he never claims his Messiahship. I I, I know there's a couple different reasons he says, and the disciples and the people uh, that he did miracles for would actually claim that about him. They would claim that he was the Messiah And he would tell them not to tell anyone, and um, he would never claim it for himself. And I've always wondered why. Sometimes he said that they weren't ready for the claim, and I understand that as well. But I think think, um, it really changed the way that I view Jesus in his ministry this week. um, When I realized the reason why he held it out from them. And I hope it opens up this passage for all of us. Jesus never claimed his status as Messiah to the people of Israel or even his disciples because they had the wrong idea of who and what the Messiah was. You see, to the Israelites, the Messiah was always just supposed to be a man, fully just a human, another person that was to come and um, he was prophesied about, but he was going to be just a man, maybe a charismatic one that led a political or social revolution, but he was never supposed to be God. Jesus didn't claim being the Messiah in this trial because they were not ready for a Messiah that was God himself. If he had claimed this early in his ministry, no one would have understood who he actually was uh, or what he had come to do. And at best, he would have looked like uh, the Messiah they thought he was, but with an extra sprinkle of divinity on it. Um, And at worst, he would have looked like a crazy person or a pretender trying to rally people to his cause. But no, Jesus had to show him that he was not the Messiah that they thought 
was coming. He was God himself becoming man, coming to rescue the entire world through his blood and sacrifice for their sake. And this is why he cites Daniel 7 and Psalm 110 here, where he says, The Son of Man would ride in on the clouds of heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. This, that is the claim of deity. And this is why the priest finally tore their robes, shouted and called blasphemy, because if this was not true, that is blasphemy. And it would have required the death penalty. But the stakes are way higher than just a man, a political or social revolutionary being put to trial. No. Stakes are higher. This is Jesus, the Son of God, standing trial, and he's doing it for the sake of the world. But what else do we know about Jesus? Well, it says in 2 Timothy 4 and 1 Peter 4 that Jesus will come again in the new heavens and the new earth as the judge of the world. The clouds he from Daniel are not clouds of vapor and precipitation, but rather the Shekinah glory of God himself. So in a way, during this trial, Jesus is saying, you're putting me on trial. You're judging me. And I'm allowing myself to be judged for the sake of the world. But he's also telling them something. He's saying, I'm, I'm coming again one day. I am the true judge of the world, and it's only through my blood that anyone will be made clean, that salvation will be found. You see, the judge allowed himself to be judged so that we would be set free. So what does this mean for us? Uh, I've thought a lot about this lately. And one thing that I've heard, I feel like, more, more recently than not, is um, how could a good and loving God let bad things happen? How let the great brokenness of the world go on, natural disaster, untimely deaths, unfair socio-political situations? How could he allow these things to happen? And all of these things are hard and nuanced questions that we don't have time for today, and I'm not going to necessarily get into but I do want us to look at it from a 10,000-foot view. What are people saying when they say this? They're saying, where are you, God? Why are you not fixing this sin and brokenness? Why don't you do something about this? And in doing so, they put him on trial. And what they and we don't realize and forget is that Jesus already stood trial. For the brokenness and sin of the world. He allowed himself to be judged for it already. Even though it wasn't of his doing. He said judge me for the brokenness of the world. I will die for it. I will allow myself to be crushed for it. And I'm doing it. Because in that crushing. You will be set free. You will find redemption. Only through me, sinless and perfect, God and human, will the way of salvation be open to the world. I have allowed myself to be judged where you deserve to be judged. I stood where you could never stand and I died a death you could never die so that you could be saved. That is the great and wonderful paradox of the gospel. John Stott puts the idea this way. For the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. 
We assert ourselves against God and put ourselves only where God deserves to be. But God sacrifices himself for us and puts himself where only we deserve to be. So what does it look like for us if we return to our thesis to bear witness to this truth? What does it look like for us to bear witness to this God who stood trial for the sins of the world? I think two things. One, I think our posture to the world changes. We step out of the judgment seat. And here's why. This truth that Jesus stood trial for the sake of the world is the greatest gift we can give to the world. It's the freedom the world is looking for and needs. It's the answer to the questions. It's the gift that God has given to us that we can give to the world, that we can bear witness to. Sometimes we have a proclivity to use it over and against the world. At times we use our faith as a weapon to judge the world, and in doing so we substitute ourselves for God. When he substituted himself for our sake and for the sins of the world. The judgment we need to point to in our witness to the world is our own judgment that Jesus took upon himself on the cross. The world desperately needs to know this truth. They desperately need that freedom, and so do we. Will we bear true and faithful witness to him who substituted himself for us? And then second, uh, the fact that Jesus stood trial for the sake of the world enables us to forgive ourselves. And we're going to get in on this a little more later, but we're going to get to this uh, in the next point. But I, I do want to remind each of you that you are no longer on trial. If you are anything like me, you may have put every single action, thought, and word you say on trial, and it's never good enough. It always falls short. And you have a hard time forgiving yourself. But let me remind you, the trial is over. God stood that trial in your place when you couldn't, and he took that condemnation you pour on yourself, and he took it on himself. It is no longer yours. Allow that forgiveness and love and acceptance wash over you this morning. The trial is over. And the verdict is in. You are free in Christ. So, and that brings us to our second point. We've seen that we must bear witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ because he stood trial for the sake of the world. Now we see that we must bear witness to him because he stood trial for the sin in our hearts by what he has done. What's fascinating about this story is the way that uh, Mark weaves two stories in together. In verses 53 to 54, we see Peter following Jesus on the way to his trial. Now, he doesn't follow super closely, but at a distance. But unlike the other disciples, he actually followed. Um, and we know we have to uh, see Peter now, because he sandwiched it in here at the beginning. We have to see his own trial with the servants and the people in context of Jesus' trial. Because that's how Mark wrote it. So we pick it back up in verse 66, after Jesus was condemned unjustly to death. Here's why this is fascinating. Peter, in a lot of ways, embodies every single one of us as followers of Jesus in our hearts. And what we're going to see is that Peter fails miserably in his trial. He failed completely and utterly, and yet he was set free. 
And this story reminds Jesus, or sorry, us, that Jesus stood trial even for Peter, who forsook him and abandoned him in his darkest hour. And this reminds us that Jesus stood trial for us, for the sin in our hearts, even when we don't deserve it. And shows us the great grace that we have in Jesus because of it. So let's look um, at Peter's uh, trial compared to Jesus's. Um, and these two are, are linked, like I said. And so first, we see Peter questioned, just like Jesus in verses 66 and, G- and 69. And where Peter is questioned by a mere servant, Jesus questioned directly by the Sanhedrin, the high priest. And Jesus never wavered for a second. But Peter broke almost instantly, denying Jesus. Second, we see the accusations lobbed at Peter having dire consequences, just like Jesus. And both men were charged with things that could cost them their lives. Where the charges against Jesus were false, they're true against Peter. He actually did deny being a disciple. Um, In verses 67, 69, and 70. Third, we see Peter respond to the charges against him, like Jesus finally responded And where Jesus answers truthfully, Peter lies. Fourth, we see Jesus telling the truth regardless of consequence. Mark tells us his immediate consequence was being beaten by the guards. But Peter denies the truth about who he is and immediately escapes consequence. And in doing so, he even warms himself by the fire with those same guards. Finally, we see Peter being cursed just like Jesus Where Jesus receives a condemnation and curse from the Sanhedrin, we see Peter bring curses down in the midst of his denial and his failure as well. You see, these are mirrors of one another. Here's why he does it. Even though Jesus was unjustly charged, even though his trial was a sham, even though he was completely innocent, he still took the punishment. And though Peter, his trial was way lower stakes with true accusations, What should have been true justice lied, got off free with no punishment. See, Jesus was actually standing trial for Peter in that moment, just like he was for us. But there's something that's astounding from this passage. Um, Peter didn't just deny Jesus. He distanced himself from Jesus in the most heinous way possible. Tim Keller and a few other scholars have looked at verse 71 and have noticed something interesting. The word here used for curse himself uh, is actually not in the reflexive tense. So that means that the on himself was inserted by translators of the ESV and NIV because of context. And that is a true translation. It is a fair way to translate this verse. But literally translated, it would say this. After he denied Jesus, he began to curse and to swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak. You see, when we translate it this way, Peter's third denial, he was not necessarily cursing himself, but rather cursing Jesus in front of everyone, distancing himself as far as possible, denying any knowledge or relationship with him in the most egregious and hateful way. Here's what makes this even worse. In Luke's retelling of this story, that right in the midst of this third denial, right in the midst of his cursing Jesus to his face in front of people, Jesus looks up 
and looks Peter directly in the face. And then we see Peter run away and weep at the atrocity that he had committed. This is tough, tough stuff. But you know what? This dark and tough passage actually teaches us something amazing and wonderful. This passage teaches us that the grace of Jesus Christ has no end. This passage teaches us that no matter how far we fallen, no matter what sin we have committed, no matter how much we have cursed the person and work of Jesus Christ, if we repent, he will always forgive us. He will always move toward us. He stood trial for that sin in our hearts. He took our punishment when we couldn't, and now he lavishes that grace and that love on us. No matter where we've been or what we've done in our darkest hour, If we repent, He looks at us in love. And we know this because there's another episode that mirrors this one. It's found in John 21, and this time the resurrected Jesus, again mirroring this episode, is warming Himself by a fire on the beach, and He approaches His disciple, the one He wants to build His church through, who denied and cursed Him. And He says this, He says, Peter, do you love me? He says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Three times. Each time, in a way, allowing for Peter to repent of his denial. Each time reminding Peter that Jesus had never abandoned him, had never left him, no matter what he had done. Reminding him that in Peter's weakness, God would use him for good. Reminding him that it is because he failed, but repented, that Jesus would use him to feed his sheep. Reminding him that even in the midst of his sin and brokenness and failure, that Jesus would use him to build his church. You see, it's weakness that salvation comes through the death of Jesus. And paradoxically, strength in the resurrection. And it's through our weakness, our repentance of our sin, in our faith in Jesus Christ, that we are made strong through his death and resurrection. And what's beautiful about the gospel and what Jesus did is that he didn't just stand trial for us. He didn't just die for us. He didn't just take on the sin of the world and our sin on his back. But in his resurrection, he lavishes his perfect record on us. He takes on our sin, but he also places his righteousness on us. And this substitutionary justice is the heart of the gospel. Colossians 1 says that we are now holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. The cross is not just a pardon for our sins, but also the gift of Jesus' perfect record given to us. So that when God sees us, he sees Jesus' perfection. That is the freedom and joy in the gospel. And that is why we must bear witness to this truth, not just to, our, to the world, but to ourselves. And the whole point of this sermon is that we must bear witness to this God-man who stood trial for us. And we do need to do this to the world and to our neighbors and to our families and every sphere of influence. But we have to bear witness to this to ourselves. We have to be reminded in ourself hate and our past sins 
and our hurt and our failings and our brokenness and our self-doubt that there is grace for us. That there is love for us. That in our weakness, Jesus makes us strong. And we see this in Peter, who became the greatest leader of the early church. It's astonishing that we have on record the greatest leader of the early church cursing his own Lord and Savior three times and denying him. And yet Jesus is saying to Peter and to you and to me is that it was because of he was the biggest failure that he became the greatest leader. Nothing more than our biggest failures plunge us into the deep waters of Jesus' grace. And in that grace, we will find wisdom, joy, purpose, and freedom. You know, um, I never came back to my coach and told him I lied. Um, and that I did cuss. Um, but I did talk to my teammates about it. And I did tell them, and, um, you know, I wish that I could... Uh, say that that moment was used for good, but really I think we were all just relieved uh, that we had stopped running. Um, but I do think that it's in my moments, we, and I, I'm not saying that cussing is a, a, a good thing to build relationships with non-believers, so don't do that. Um, but it is in my weakness, when I let those times in with my non-Christian brothers and sisters, when I let them in on my own weakness, in my own failing, in my own brokenness, that they moved towards me. And that Jesus showed both me and them his great grace and his love. And that's our calling as we go forth from this place, as we go to bear witness to the world of the grace of Jesus. I wonder what it would look like for us to lead first with our weakness rather than our strength, with our woundedness rather than our fixed person that we put out there. I wonder what that would look like for us. Will you pray with me? Father, <clears throat> thank you that you stood trial for the sake of the world and that you stood trial for our hearts and our sin. I pray that um, your grace and your goodness sinks deep into our being, into our hearts, and into our soul as we go from this place, bearing witness to who you are and what you have done in the world. It's in your heavenly name we pray. Amen.